to Hip Hop Caucus's Think 100%, the coolest show on climate change. Recording tonight in Brooklyn, Brooklyn, New York. Brooklyn, 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 Brooklyn. In front of a beautiful live audience here at the Confluence Philanthropy's ninth annual practitioners gathering. Our guests tonight are the award-winning truth-telling journalist Amy Goodman of Democracy Now! Yeah, yeah! And the innovative, powerful, and dynamic Ellen Dorsey of Wallace Global Fund. What a great way to kick off season two. And we had an amazing, amazing season one. That's Over right. 42 guests uh, were covered with many different aspects of the work that we do, climate and environmental justice. We had the top movement leaders, elected officials, and cultural makers that were on it. And they introduced to our listeners people and issues that sometimes folks just didn't get a chance to be heard or otherwise get the attention that's necessary. Right. We also, we also got to dispel a lot of myths. Y'all mm. know there's some myths about environmentalism that are out now. there. Come on now. Y'all know what I'm talking about. No, no, come on now. And continually, sometimes we needed to educate folks on the fact that climate change is impacting everyone. All right now. Y'all all right with that? Impacting right. everyone. Not a hoax. That's right. But it's impacting people of color and communities that are often forgotten. They're hitting first and worst in many mm. times. So our frontline communities and communities of color care deeply about climate change. And we want to make sure that you understand that they vote, uh, you vote, and we're going to use that to make real change happen. So we want to also uh, highlight our strongest supporters, those who are doing climate action around the country. Man, I'm so glad you said that, Mustafa. <laughs> <laughs> Think 1% is the coolest show on climate change. Mm -hmm. It is broadening the movement, and that is what is most critical for the work that needs to be done. Now, the environmental movement has had some amazing wins, mm -hmm. like the establishment of the EPA in 1970, the Clean Air Act, mm -hmm. uh, the Clean Waters Act, and really pivotal, fundamental things that have ensured certain levels of protection for our planet mm -hmm. around this country and for our communities. Now, what, without that, the environmental movement, though, has gone and has done for our movement would be a lot worse right now if these things were not done. Yep. Mm -hmm. But climate change is real. It's a different kind of game. Mm -hmm. We have less than 12 years to get on track to change everything about our energy economy and what we need to do for the irreversible, mm -hmm. catastrophic impacts of climate change. And so our climate movement isn't big enough and it isn't broad enough yet. It cannot be just one sector over here or one person or group over there. We need to break down the silos because the fossil fuel industry has been pitting, yes, indeed, yes, indeed. I heard yep. it 
sin audience. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it has been pitting environmentalists against communities of color, and that is wrong. Yep. That is very wrong. <laughs> so it's time to break that cycle once and for all. It's time to break down the silos that divide us. So what we are doing here on Think 1% is lifting up diverse voices, many folks from many communities, showing a much broader picture of who and what the climate movement is. That's right. So this isn't a show. This isn't, a, this isn't just something that we just do. Think 1% is a strategy. Mm-hmm. It's a lifestyle. It's a mantra. Yep. Uh, we can't just think about the problem that we have in the terms of just uh, the problems of solutions. We must think about it, how that we can transition to 100% clean energy, including justice, yeah. mm-hmm. as the solution. Mm. And as we say, think 100% yes. all the time. Yes, exactly, Rev. Exactly. So can I tell the folks our theme for season two? Please. Yes, please do. Okay. Well, DJ, can I get a drum roll, please? Oh, not really a drum roll, but all right. We'll, we'll take that. We'll take it. <laughs> That's kind of, kind of a drum roll with a theme song. <laughs> right. Mixed in. The Hilarious. That'll do. This season on Think 100%, the coolest show on climate change, our theme is Young People will win. Mm. That's right. And we got a room yes. full of young people. Yes. Young folks, yes. 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 We're going to be talking to young people all across the country. We're going to be lifting up their stories, their leadership, and their vision. Mm. Millennials and Generation Z are the most diverse generations this country has ever seen. That's right. And and we, I say we because I'm still a millennial, are breaking down silos already. So this season on Think 100%, we invite everyone to join us on this journey to discover and find hope in the fact that when it comes to climate justice, young people will win. I know that's right. All right now, young people will win. Y'all say it with me, young people. Young Young people people will win. Young people will win. And for all the folks who are listening or watching Think 100% for the first time, I hope this is not y'all's first time, you can find all of season one. You can actually go on iTunes and pick it up, or you can go to think100.info. Y'all take your phones out real quick and go to think100.info. Also, subscribe to the show. Make sure that you like it, comment Five stars, y'all. Share everything with us, rate us, <laughs> and tell us what you think. <laughs> so let's get to it. We are going to bring an amazing artist to the stage, an award-winning poet, poet and activist, as you would say, an artivist, yes. as we like to say. Now, born in Trinidad, that's where my family is from. Hey. Well, I ain't got no love for Trinidad in here. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> they don't know nothing about carnival. They don't know nothing about it. I know. Listen, I'm from Trinidad and Louisiana, so we do Mardi Gras and carnival. Oh, wow. Let's party, party all the time, man. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, he is a New York based MC. He's a three time champion on Showtime mm-hmm. at the Apollo. Uh, he's a graduate from my alma mater, Howard University, and a youth educator working in schools and prisons. Please give a warm welcome and a round of applause to Messiah! Peace and blessings, peace and love. How's everyone doing this evening? I love the energy in the room. So I want to share peace with you as we've been talking about the babies, about the children. Uh, This piece is entitled, Who Will Save the Babies? And it's inspired by the last 12 years of my life working with young people ages 16 to 21 affected by the criminal justice system. For the last seven years working with young people on Rikers Island here in New York, working to provide specialized intervention and support, not only on the inside, but as well as when they come home to break that cycle. So it's entitled, Who Will Save the Babies? When I was a found dead, then will we help the babies? When they paint the town red, like those Delta ladies, will they get attention from the elders, maybe? While our politician does his last four years in politics, compare how many youth get four-year scholarships to those doing 25 to life for hollow tips just to lick his fingertips from a bag of chips and sips from a Capri Sun to the precinct for fingerprints or formerly known as like the single prince life as a child shouldn't be so tough everyday beast mode no peace no love survival should be no child's rival for food on the tongue at night the young will bite when hunger strike lightning and thunder strike nobody's given who will assist like scotty pippen a population that's poverty stricken some fulfill dreams some kill dreams some hearts dormant some march forward like drill teams the moon couldn't shine without the sun what if fat joe didn't sign big pun obama ain't win without the vote though he decide to run so don't forget to throw the rope when you climb to where you from don't just remind how far you've come to thank jehovah is to live the african proverb sankofa never forgetting others in the path one has covered no good deed of the past goes undiscovered the ones that suffered rarely gets mentioned Unless an obituary or penitentiary detention. What's better, cure or prevention? What if we saw the potential of the mental of that young boy as essential before the law? Who went to war for credential? Gang initiated all military labor for business hours. Either or, we at war for a turf that isn't ours. Who will orchestrate a plan to lead us from awkward to straight so youth won't be tried as adults in New York State on a court date getting caught with some weight trying to put a fork on the plate? No contributions unless it come with a tax write-off. 
So a young girl's prostituting, showing her backside off on a busy strip, opposed to business clothes in a busy world, products of environments, nothing like Disney World, no Santa Claus coming down the chimney world, doggy dog, every man for self, stingy world. How many CEOs who were once VPs put the same motivation they put to their corporation into their 501c3s? See, your corporation is your sidekick you make the best of, but your nonprofit is your side chick. It get less love. Messed up how they judge us, but all these youth programs suffer from a budget cut. So mask and four five comes before necktie and button up. Much love to single mothers, but we need two in the home. Nonprofits are positive, but they can't do it alone. One hand can't clap and one man can't make it happen. We all got a part to play. We all got a part to play. And that job starts today. You've been hired. Now that you're inspired, interview questions or what the youth inquire. Who will save the babies? Thank you for listening. Peace and blessings. I appreciate it. Thank you. For our audience who doesn't know about the Confluence Philanthropy Gala, it is a membership organization that brings investors and foundations together to figure out how to better align investing and philanthropic giving to be more effective. So when Messiah is asking questions in his poem about how serious folks are Mm. about saving the next generation, it's a layered question. How much is it worth to folks to save the babies? You know, Rev, You were telling me earlier about the story of how the first African Baptist church came to be the first black church in North America. That's right. Will you please share that story? I I will. You know, um, I was recently in Savannah, Georgia for a convening on voting rights. And when we got to visit the first African Baptist church, um, which today sits on Montgomery Street in Savannah, Georgia, Um, This is the oldest uh, black church in North America. It was organized in 1773. Three, wow, yes, indeed. Three years before um, America itself, um, the country, not the land. (laughs) Um, Little joke there for those listening online. (laughs) But the founding of the church um, and its members, they were slaves. Um, and they would congregate on the shores of Savannah. And so because they had, they, they had no other place to congregate. So you got to remember, these are slaves and that, that are there. And they came together and they went to a church um, who wanted, they wanted a, a proper place to worship. Mm-hmm. So there was a white church. And I don't mean white building church. <laughs> but is, They'll get that one later. <laughs> but it was a white church at the time looking to sell their building. And so they told the pastor of First African Baptist Church that they would sell them that church for $1,500. Hmm. Now, you got to understand, $1,500 back then was the equivalent to about a million dollars today. And these are slaves. Slaves. So what they did is that the slaves went to their masters 
and ask for the money from their masters about for the money that they would get towards their freedom. And within one month, they raised $1,000. Slaves went to their masters, and the money for their freedom, they took that money and used that money. And the pastor then took that $1,000 to the white church, who then took the thousand and said, okay, you have another, you have six months to get the remaining $500 remaining. Within two months, they raised the remaining $500, and the congregation of slaves purchased the property. Mm-hmm. So the time came to build a new building on this, on this lot. And so these, these were slaves. And so you can imagine, they had to work seven days, week up, sun up, sundown. And so they built, the slaves built the building at night because it wasn't safe for the men to go around during the day. And so what they would do is that the men would go to the site, but it was the woman. And there is no movement without woman. Yes. It was the woman who would make the bricks for the building down by the seashore. And once dry would carry them, the bricks, about a mile and a half to the location where the church was. Mm. And then the men would construct the building with the bricks that the woman had brought for them at night. And so this church became a stop on the Underground Railroad. This church became a place where Dr. King would test out sermons during the civil rights movement. This church was home, uh, of, was born of the risks taken by slaves who raised money from their masters and put their bodies on the line to construct a building that is now an institution that still exists today that has served as a place of safety from organizing and and, and an ongoing pursuit of freedom that has now gone on for over 200 years. As someone who has had to figure out how to raise money for the movement, Lord have mercy. All right, now. I know you need a witness on that. Lord, when I think of this story, and what these folks who were slaves risk. Come on now, Lord. The money they raised and the dangerous work they put in to create an institution, not only am I in awe, and you can see the building on the screen, mm-hmm. I'm reminded, almost brought to tears, there is no excuse for us in the present day to not to be able to organize the resources needed to achieve justice and to save our planet. Truly, if these slaves can build at night, there are no excuses 
for any of us. Wow. I hadn't heard that story before. Everybody in the room, lean forward. Can you lean forward for me for a second? I want you to close your eyes, and I want you to do something else. I want you to reach your hand out to the person who's closest to you. I want you to realize that folks raised money from their masters out of their payments towards their own freedom. Keep your eyes closed because I want you to understand what Rev just shared with you. Delaying their own freedom at risk their lives. I hope everyone here and all our listeners keep that in mind as we start to move forward and as we drive and dive into this discussion with our guests, I want you to understand the commitment that's going on. Remember this, there's no risk that is too big when it comes to freedom and survival for future generations. There's no risk that is too big. They say that banks are too big to fail. Well, isn't the truth that our existence is too big to fail? Come on now. Antonique, will you tell, you know, the audience what topics we're going to have with our guests today? Absolutely. What we're going to get into with our guests today on this episode is money. Come on now. <laughs> and the movement. What does, I like both of those. Actually. Yes, money and the movement. Yes. What does freedom from fossil fuels cost? But also, how much do we stand to gain? Mm. What are the risks we have to take? Mm-hmm. And what are the rewards we're going to get? As you know, they say, freedom ain't free. Come on. But they also say, no cash, no cause. All right. And of course, Wu-Tang said, cash rules everything around me. Come on now. Free get the money, dollar, dollar bill, y'all. All right. We, are, we, we in Brooklyn, y'all. Hey, but we in Brooklyn. That's right. Wu-Tang, Wu-Tang forever. That is true. They don't know Wu-Tang. But that is true in the movement, too. There is no climate victory without money to fund the transition to clean energy. That's true. So tonight we have two guests oh, who we're going to dive into I'm these so questions excited. with from their perspectives. Mm. Ellen Dorsey is going to talk about philanthropy and investing and her journey leading the Wildest Global Fund in the new era with returns and, and more effective giving. And Amy Goodman is going to talk about the media and the movement and her journey of putting herself I on the line. I, I thought you were going to say Pittsburgh. That's, that, oh, that's, Pittsburgh. Know, that's where Ellen is from. Okay, that's right. Pittsburgh's that's in the right. building. Yeah, that is right. There's two for Pittsburgh in the building. <laughs> <laughs> Putting herself on the line to tell stories of activists on the front lines. Mm-hmm. If people on the front lines can risk all they have, then certainly the rest of us can do more. That's right. A truly incredible lineup, Antonique. Mm-hmm. So I say, let's not delay any longer. We have our first guest is Miss Ellen Dorsey. Ellen, welcome to Think One Hundred Percent, the you. coolest show on climate change. I am honored to be on the coolest show. I'm so excited. Uh, I'm not sure how I rated to well, get this ooh, Ellen, I, I'm going to say right now, you're looking pretty spiffy there now. Yes. That's what I'm talking about. I wore the gala scarf oh, there for it is. Dana. <laughs> there it is. Ellen, we are here at Confluence Philanthropy. Give yourselves another round of applause. <laughs> We're in the room with a whole lot of philanthropists. But we got a whole bunch of folks who are listening also who may not really understand what philanthropy is all about. Can you just sort of break it down for folks? Yeah, so 
Philanthropy, there can be two kinds of philanthropy. The one is people give money. They give money to help achieve something that they believe in. That can be small dollars. You and I are all philanthropists when we give to something we believe in. Mm -hmm. And then there's also institutionalized philanthropy, like a foundation. So I work at a foundation. And basically, how do most foundations, private foundations, get created? Well, somebody made a lot of money, a lot of money, sometimes really a lot of money, and they can't spend it all, and they have charitable um, goals. They want to do something meaningful, so they create a foundation, and those foundations receive a charitable tax status because we serve the public good, right? Mm -hmm. So that's important because we're going to come back to that notion that we serve the public good. And then the important thing for this group of foundations, everybody that's in this room is trying to um, not just use grant dollars to help nonprofits, because that's what foundations do. We make checks to nonprofit organizations, social justice, environmental, women's rights organizations. But we also have money that's invested. So somebody gave money set up that foundation, and that money gets invested. Like old school investing, old school, old boy investing, usually Wall Street, and that money creates returns, mm. that you make money from how you invest that money. And 5%, at least 5% of that money every year goes into grant making. That's how foundations work. That's the typical model. Not that everybody does it that way. So what's, but what's important to realize is lots of good things happen with those grant dollars, right? Mm -hmm. um, but there's a lot of power in philanthropy. And so, you know, that power's not always accountable. Mm -hmm. We have the power to choose who gets money. We empower people when we give them, we empower organizations when we give them grants but we are also choosing not to empower other organizations. So there's complex issues around power. Wow. There's complex issues around whether we choose to invest in systemic change that changes society's power relationships, or we invest in incremental reform. Really big, different approaches, all under this rubric of philanthropy. And then there's another way that we have power, and that's in how we invest that money. Mm -hmm. Do we choose to invest in the big Wall Street funds? Do we choose to, and it's a choice, mm. do we choose to invest in corporations that aren't doing good things for society? Um, and do we choose to invest Real in quick, the- explain what you mean when you say that. So, okay, let's, an obvious example for the coolest show on climate change is do we choose to invest in fossil fuel companies? Okay. Fossil fuel companies who refuse to be good global citizens and accept the role that they are playing in this, you know, life-threatening crisis right. and either choose to wind down or choose to transform their business model. But investors can be invested in those companies. 
even drive, helping build their war chests that they use to deny the science of climate change oh, or to contribute to politicians so that maybe they won't vote on policies that will regulate their product and their emissions. So we invest and we have choices to make about our power in investing. Wow. Mm -hmm. Wow, wow is right. Um, Peel back the layers for us, Ellen. What is the Wallace Global Fund doing? And you guys have gone on quite a journey to align yourself with investing and giving for maximum impact. Please tell us about that. Well, our, our foundation works on issues of the environment and women's rights and defending democracy and social justice globally and in the US. Not a huge foundation, there are really big foundations. Um, we're kind of medium, small size. Um, we made the decision starting in 2009 that that wall between how you invest your money and how you make grants to organizations, we were gonna take that wall down. Mm -hmm. And that it wasn't okay to pretend like how we invest isn't related to our mission. Mm. Our money could either be invested in ways that are driving the problems that we ask our grantees to solve, mm -hmm. or we can be investing in ways that align with the solutions and in partnership with our grantees and in partnership with social movements bringing about justice and working on climate change. So we started um, overhauling our investments. Um, it was a journey, you know, when we started out, we kind of old school approach, and we sat down and said, what are our values? What, what does it mean to invest in line with our values? Hmm. And it was very clear, um, starting in 2009, we had to get out of fossil fuels. We had to get out of mining. We had to invest, we had to get out of the extractive and exploitive industries. Mm -hmm. And we had to apply human rights lens to our investments. We didn't want to be in companies that exploited workers, exploited women. Mm. So we had to begin to look for ways to invest in the kinds of companies that are bringing about a more just and transformative world. That journey still continues, just like our grant making, we're constantly trying to improve in our grant making, we have to constantly improve in our investments as well. But it turned our institution upside down, and I'll just give you a couple of, of highlights about that. It turned our institution upside down in a really good way. Our program staff sits with our investment team. We think about how we can do things differently. We, we went, we got rid of some managers, we identified new managers. I want to give a shout out to uh, Catherine Chen and Tom Van Dyke um, from RBC. They've been our partners in this. And we, um, we now today, you know, almost a decade later, we're 100% ESG integrated. That basically means, for your listeners that might not know that terminology, that we look at environmental, social, and governance issues in our investments. Say one more time. Right. Environmental, social, like human rights, mm -hmm. and governance, like good governance. Mm -hmm. You know, you got women on your board, you have people of color on your board, that's good governance. Mm -hmm. If you don't, that's bad governance. Right. So ESG. I like that. How was that? Yes. Simple, a little yeah. simple. I love it, yes. Right. ESG. <laughs> 100% ESG, we have, um, we have commitments to renewable energy, to climate solutions, to energy justice, 
um, and to reach people with clean and safe energy that don't currently have it today. We're about 16% invested in climate solutions. Mm -hmm. And we have impact investments that advance our values on women's rights and, and social justice in other ways, which we can talk about. But the good part of the story is the way we invest saved us a ton of money because we're kind of like getting hosed in fees and commissions. So once we overhauled it, we saved money. And then the investments themselves are doing great. Like we beat our benchmarks every year. And I'll give you an example. In 2017, we did close to 22% returns. And that's really high. And we made the decision, the board and the investment committee and the staff, board mostly made this decision, mm -hmm. that we would take our returns at the end of 2017 and put them all back into grants into 2018. We doubled our grant budget because we felt it's not okay to grow your endowment when we have a crisis of democracy and Come a climate crisis. Wow. Yes. Amazing. I like that. So, so I have two questions. As you're talking, I hear in the background of your voice there's something there in which not everybody in your sector is doing that. <laughs> I could be wrong. Wow. That was smooth. But I, that was smooth. But, but, but I hear that in your voice. Um, and so and it, there's a, there seems like there's a sense, in the words of Dr. King, a sense of urgency that you're trying to get out. So explain why I'm hearing that, because clearly that means that not everybody is doing that. Well, you know. <laughs> um, I think we're moving too slow. Let, let, me, let me start by saying that when we are um, thinking about the babies and we're thinking about the people on the front lines of the climate crisis today. This isn't what's happening in 20 years. What's happening in 20, 50, 100 years is apocalyptic. What's happening today is horrific. When we see these climate impacts every day and we understand that those that are most impacted are those that had the least to do with the problem and feel the effects the worst, we have an ethical and moral responsibility to step outside of the standard operating procedures that got us to this point mm -hmm. and say we must do it differently. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> right. So, Ellen, on Think 100%, we've talked about Divest, Invest. We've had shows on there. You know, we've had uh, folks who you've worked with who've come on and who've shared, uh, and we're really proud about that. But I'm not sure if everybody in the room understands what Divest, Invest looks like, but I want to set something up for you. Everybody say Divest. Divest. Invest. Invest. That was just pitiful. Y'all try it again. Divest. Divest. Invest. Invest. So can you just break it down a little bit for folks? Wow, that's, a, that's tough to follow. I'll do my best. <laughs> okay. I'm not going to be able to put it in rhyme. Um, I, I think the basic premise is, 
is that it's no longer okay to invest in fossil fuels. If you own fossil fuels, you own climate change, and you need to be very clear about that. And instead, we have an opportunity to deploy our resources towards the solutions. And I'm not just talking about large-scale renewables. We're talking about deploying our resources for a just transition to frontline communities, for community development, to reach the people that don't have electricity today, and to achieve economic and racial justice while we make the energy transition. Mm -hmm. And that's what INVEST is about. But what's exciting about this story is beginning in 2011, Hmm. Students started organizing campaigns on their college campuses saying mm -hmm. that they no longer wanted their universities to invest in fossil fuels. And very quickly, those campaigns began to multiply. And two brilliant people helped accelerate that. One who's in the room, I believe, Mark Campanelli, mm -hmm. who came up with a brilliant analysis about, hey guys, these oil and gas and coal companies have way too much of it. They can't ever burn it or they'll cook the planet. So these are actually bad investments, making a strong ethical argument as to why it, you're gonna lose your shirt if you stay in them. <laughs> then Bill McKibben linked the bubbling up of divestment campaigns with this stranded asset risk argument and threw down mm. in a do the math tour and article in Rolling Stone and said, get out of the fossil fuels. Everybody needs to divest. And this thing exploded overnight. 40 campuses went to 400, spread the faith groups, spread the pension funds, cities, and even us, 200 foundations now have committed to divest and invest. Took a while, a lot of organizing, thanks to Lisa, Jenna, and Clara. Come on. Helped on divest. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so what began as a David and Goliath campaign to say, we're gonna take away the social license of the fossil fuel industry to operate because they are not changing, they're lying about the science, and they're buying off our politicians, and we're gonna say no more, you're toxic. That movement now is fully global. There are campaigns all over the world, and today, in 2019, what is that, Ten, nine years later? Mm -hmm. There are a 1,000 institutions that have publicly committed to divest with assets of $8 trillion mm. under management. Oh, wow. Now that's a youth movement. And why it was important for philanthropy to support this movement is not to profile us and say, oh, look, we did it, we divested. It was about getting behind and supporting the movement, putting the wind at the back of those students mm. and saying, we support your demands for social change. And we're gonna put our portfolios up and show that we can do it. And we're gonna move the market for fossil-free products and we're gonna help accelerate that. So that the 200 foundations, you supported the, the, mo the movement. To those of you that haven't yet done it, it is not too late to be on the right side of history. All right. Say and, it. And, and on that note, <laughs> man, thank you, Ellen, for joining us. Thank you, and being Ellen. a part on the coolest show <laughs> on Politics. Thank you, Ellen. Thank you. <laughs> Come on, y'all. Make some noise <laughs> for Amy Goodman. <laughs>
Amy, welcome to Think 1%, the coolest show on climate change. It's great to be with you, and yes, it's very cool, <laughs> outside and inside here. <laughs> All right, Amy, so it's usually us on Democracy I Now, know. so now we got you a little bit. That's kind of fun. And I'm it. honored. I'm just super honored. I'm like a fanboy, so it's, it's all good. Well, I mean, I just have to say that we interviewed Mustafa when he quit the EPA. He was the first one to quit the Environmental Protection Agency right after being there for yeah. almost 400 years. years. How many years? 400. 400 years. <laughs> 400 years. <laughs> um, after President Trump came into office, and yeah. you want to be a he part of that. He started in 1619, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Rev got jokes. We're going to turn it up in a little bit. <laughs> but you and your team have just been killing it. You guys have been on top of climate change for a long time now, from Copenhagen to Poland. Right. You guys make sure that you are capturing those stories of folks who sometimes don't get attention, of issues that don't get attention. So I'm interested and I'm leaning in. Me too. I, I'm curious. Let me lean. What are some of those okay. stories that really stick out in your mind? I, I mean, you just talked about Poland. We've been covering the UN Climate Summit for the last, oh, 10 years. Uh, from Copenhagen to Durban, South Africa, Doha, we were in uh, Cancun when it was there. We were in Peru, in Lima. Um, we were in Paris at the... Uh, climate summit where an agreement was made and then President Trump pulled out of it. Most recently, we're in Katowice, Poland. Amazing that it was in Poland. We were in a convention center. This was coal country of coal land, Poland. Mm -hmm. um, we were in a convention center that was shaped like a coal mine. Wow. Celebrating coal. And that's what the Trump administration was doing there. Although they're saying they're pulling the US out of the UN climate agreement, um, they do send their representatives to represent the fossil fuel industry. Mm -hmm. um, I had to chase the U.S. Crazy. representative. I don't know if any of you saw this. I went <laughs> up. <laughs> you go to democracynow.org and uh, click. No, you're pretty fast. You know, I'm take yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we had just finished the show. Uh, it was 2 to 3 there. It's 8 in the morning live here uh, based in New York. And I think that was the day that we interviewed Greta Thunberg, who you may all have heard of this remarkable 16-year-old activist. She was 15 at the time. You know, her Twitter handle is like 16-year-old Swedish climate activist with Asperger's. Mm. And she said she sees the world in a different way. Right. Uh, with Asperger's, she sees it in black and white. When she was nine years old, we had her on, then brought her dad on to talk about how they changed their lives. Because Greta focused on climate change for two years, when she was nine and 10 and 11 years old. Wow. And she then stopped eating and she stopped speaking. She said, what are you doing? You are only lying to us. Mm -hmm. um, her parents stopped everything, focused on her. She went on this past year a school strike. She stood in front of the Swedish parliament for three weeks straight, every single day. The MPs would say, go to school. And she said, we have done our homework. You haven't. Come on now. And after the election there, she started going every week leading climate school strike and has launched a movement around the world. When we were at the UN Climate Summit in Poland, she was addressing the world plenary. 
And she was saying to them, you are acting like children. So let the real children lead, she said. She just addressed the European Union in Brussels. I believe she's going to meet with the Pope. And since we're interviewing kids all over the country right now on Democracy Now!, they are leading, because of Greta, a global climate strike. In fact, just um, a few days ago, um, our... Our guests are getting younger and younger. Mm-hmm. Um, we had Magdalena and Rio, her brother. Magdalena's 10, Rio's 12. And then we also had um, Isha Clark on. She was elderly. She was 16. Yeah. And um, oh, they oh. are three of the kids yeah. uh, who confronted Senator Dianne Feinstein in her office right. in Woo! California. Yes. And, I mean, they went as young as seven years old. Yep. And, um, and they were demanding she support uh, uh, a, a global green new deal, the global Woo! green deal. Mm-hmm. And... Um, uh, Dianne Feinstein, the senator, said, I have 30 years on you. I know what I'm doing. Um, uh, and one of them said, but, uh, you know, we, you represent us. She said, how old are you? And she said, I'm 16, Isha said. And she said, well, you can't vote. You didn't vote for me. <laughs> and so Isha said, yes, but you must represent all of your constituents. And Magdalena, the 10-year-old, uh, said, yeah, but... It's us who are going to be affected by it, so you have to listen to us. It is astounding. They're all getting ready for March 15th. Kids are going to be walking out all over the country, and not only all over the country, but around the world. But to provide a forum for people to speak for themselves, that is absolutely critical. You have the pundits on television that tear apart um, new proposals, but you have a new critical mass in Congress, and you have kids recognizing. I mean, when you have these kids in California saying, you understand, we live with forest fires. Um, We are afraid. There are mudslides, forest fires. We go to Florida, we go to Louisiana, and you're talking about massive rainstorms. You're talking about some of the coldest weather in the Northeast. And young people understand we are in Trouble. In Britain, there's an organization called Extinction Rebellion, and they are super gluing themselves everywhere Mm -hmm. to call attention to what's happening. And, you know, I think it all started a few years ago, the modern movement, with the standoff at Standing Rock. That's right. No, no. And and speaking of that, I mean, first, let me say for these young folks, we actually had many of those amazing young folks on, on our season one. I think 100%. We had young folks on from the Sunrise Movement, yeah. um, Zero Hour, mm-hmm. um, the plaintiffs uh, who are suing uh, the U.S. government on climate. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was very pivotal. One of the things that just touched me with those young people was this. They, they would be in this position. They would say that our parents and our parents' parents in the 20th century fought for equality. But we are now fighting for existence. And so if we don't get it right now, then we don't have a chance. Which leads to Standing Rock, because you mentioned Standing Rock, and I was at Standing Rock, and um, um, I wear many hats. The hat I had on earlier was, was Minnie Wichoni, was Water is Life, and then this hat actually, the hat I have on today, uh, is Flint still doesn't have clean water. Mm. Right. Um, but y- y- your coverage of Standing Rock became almost a story in itself. And then almost you became the story as well. 
So can you tell us what happened, what it was like for you when, when, when what does it happen when the journalist becomes the story? Well, you know, the critical point is that in 2016, in the midst of the presidential election year in this country, where climate change is such an important issue, in the general election debates, not one of, I don't even call them journalists, I call them news personalities on television. Come on now. Mm -hmm. Not once did they raise the issue of climate change. And I was up in Albany on, on a panel sponsored by Bob Schieffer of CBS, who was involved in, in these debates. Um, and he's retired now. And I said, Bob, not once. I mean, I would go on, I'm invited on CNN and MSNBC, and you know, I'd say, why aren't you covering the issue of climate change? And they would say, well, the executives upstairs say people's eyes glaze over. Really? Really? I think because they're terrified, not because they're bored. That's right. And I said to Bob, how can it be this critical issue of the day, 2016, you had the standoff at Standing Rock, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Not one of you raised this issue in the main debates. And he said, okay, maybe there we were wrong, he said. So let's talk about what indigenous people and their allies were doing in North Dakota. It was April 1st, 2016, that uh, the unofficial historian of Standing Rock, LaDonna Brave Bull Allard, uh, opened her property along the Cannonball River uh, to the resistance. The resistance? It's the resistance at the time to DAPL, the Dakota Access Pipeline, that was going to be built. It was taking fracked oil from the, um, from the oil fields of North Dakota through North Dakota, South Dakota, uh, Iowa, Illinois, and it was going to link up with a pipeline to the Gulf of Mexico. And they were saying, no, we don't want it on our land. They actually weren't very different from other North Dakotans. The people of Bismarck, the capital, said, we don't want it going through our capital. And so their views were respected. Mm. The people of Mandan, where the courthouse and the prison are, where so many hundreds of Native Americans have been imprisoned protesting DAPL, the people of Mandan said, we don't want it here. Are you kidding? What if it broke, a pipeline broke and destroyed? And they respected their views. Unfortunately, the Standing Rock Sioux were not so lucky. They just said, we don't want it here. But that was just too bad for them because they said they were building it. And they were going to build it under the Missouri River, the longest river in North America. And the people were terrified that um, if there was a leak, it could endanger 17 million people downstream. And they are Native and non-Native alike. But it was the Native people of Standing Rock who were saying, we're going to stop this. And so they took a stand. Now, we should have come there much earlier. We were covering it from afar. We're based here in New York, but we were covering it. But Labor Day weekend, now we're moving into the general election time. That was like September 2nd, September 3rd, that Labor Day weekend. We went to Standing Rock to be there to record the voices of people on the ground. And what we found was amazing resistance. I mean, you'd have older women in traditional garb, and you'd have girls, and they would have a water ceremony on these back rural roads of North Dakota holding up just like this, glasses of water. And they would actually, as they move forward, they would be met by fully militarized sheriff's department. And they would offer the water. They'd say, this is for you, not just for us. This is for your children, not just ours. And these, these police departments, the sheriff's departments, they had tanks, they had MRAPs, they had drones, uh, they had automatic weapons. You know the scene, maybe not from there, because the media was not covering that very much at the time, but you know it from Ferguson. 
You know what it looked like. The corporate media went in force to Ferguson as they should have Mike Brown gunned down by a white police officer. His body laid a bake in the hot August sun hour after hour. That's right. And the people rose up and they were met by the St. Louis Police Department, sur suburban police departments, fully militarized. I mean, this is recycling in America today. That's right. You take the weapons from Iraq and Afghanistan and you give them to the police departments of the United States. And as a number of police department sheriffs and um, uh, heads of police departments have said, what do you think we're going to treat our citizens as when we're looking at them through the scope of a rifle? Mm. And even they, people like Norm Stamper, who led the police riot at the world uh, during 1999, the World Trade Organization protests in Seattle, and he was forced out as he should have been, the police chief of Seattle, he said, I made a terrible mistake. He said, I saw our nurses, doctors, farmers, teachers, environmentalists, labor activists, high school kids as the enemy because we're looking at them through these guns. And so we opened fire with tear gas. We ran out of tear gas. He said we had to go to other states to go after the citizens and non-citizens of our country who were just concerned about what's going to happen to the planet. So that was way back then. So back to North Dakota, we are seeing these militarized police departments facing down against Native Americans, but the Native Americans didn't stop. That was Friday, we were covering that of Labor Day weekend. Saturday, we followed a group to a disputed area. They said it was their um, burial ground. Burial ground. Yep. Mm -hmm. And this was going to court, a judge would be ruling in a week. And the judge said, then you show me a map to prove this, and they did. They laid out a map to show the burial ground, gave it to the judge, the judge gives it to Energy Transfer Partners, which owns Dakota Access Pipeline, as judges do. And when the people went to plant their tribal flags, the bulldozers that had been way down the road all of a sudden were there, and they were excavating on this holiday week, and the people were shocked. What are you doing? And they believed that they, Energy Transfer Partners had taken the map and leapfrog their bulldozers from way down the road to destroy the area so it would be a moot point when the judge ruled. And people were furious. Mm. And it was women and girls who took a stand in front of the bulldozers and they stood in front of them, a terrifying sight. These are land crushing, massive machines. But the bulldozers pulled back one after another, and the people came forward from the resistance camps, and there were many set up, the Red Warrior camp, the Sacred Stone camp. Hundreds of people came running when they heard what was happening, and the bulldozers, one, two, three, four, five, six of them were pulling back, and the people were moving forward, and then the Dakota Access Pipeline guards unleash dogs mm, mm, on the mm. protesters, and they don't call themselves protesters. They call themselves water protectors, and they unleashed dogs we were videoing the whole time. I mean, it was unbelievable. We showed a dog with its mouth and its nose dripping with blood. Mm. Even the dogs were afraid. They'd be thrown into the crowd. They'd bite their way out. Mm. And the people ultimately prevailed. Even the guards took their dogs with the bulldozers and they moved back. I mean, they prevailed at a ridiculously high price. Beaten, bullied, uh, maced, tear gassed, but they did prevail that day. And the Dakota Access Pipeline moved back, the people. We had this video. We immediately posted it online that night. Mm -hmm. And this is an answer to the network corporate executives who say people's eyes glaze over. Within 24, 48 hours, there were 14 million views of this video. 
Wow. So jump forward a few days right before the judge rules. President Obama is in Laos for this historic meeting, and he's having his final democracy forum, bringing in young people from around Asia to talk about democracy. And the last person raises her hand from Malaysia. She had come to Laos, and she said, President Obama, what about the Dakota Access Pipeline? She'd seen something online. She asked a question no American journalist publicly asked President Obama. He wow. told the story eloquently about the history of Native Americans and the oppression of Native Americans. But when it came to Dapple, he said, I have to get back to you on that. And he reportedly came back to the White House. That was like Wednesday, Thursday of that week after Labor Day. And he saw the dog sicked on the people. And it wasn't lost on the first African-American president of this country, the significance of dogs. As Winona Duke, um, the great... Native American activist, environmental activist from the White Earth Reservation who pitched her teepee right there said to us that day, uh, she said uh, about the governor, she said, Governor, you are not George Wallace. This is not Alabama 1963. We are through. Mm -hmm. So we go back to New York. We're continuing to cover what's happening. On, um, on Thursday, the judge is going to rule on Friday. Uh, Governor Dalrymple, that was his name at the time, called out the National Guard. It did not look promising for the Native Americans, the decision the next day. What we didn't know is that the authorities quietly issued that Thursday an arrest warrant for me. Mm. I didn't know this. Friday, after the show, after Democracy Now!, um, uh, me and my colleague flew to Toronto for the film festival. They were doing a film on the great muckraking journalist I.F. Stone, who said, if you can remember two words, he said to young journalists, remember, governments lie. If you can remember three, <laughs> remember all governments lie. And that's the name of the documentary. And then it showed journalists and organizations following in the footsteps, so they chronicled democracy now, so they asked us to come speak. So see, I wasn't fleeing the United States. We really had been invited. And the next day, I always carry my following me are speaking at the University of Toronto. I'm making this so fast, we don't have much time. Um, and I, you know, it's up a hundred people, students at University of Toronto after the film. And I, my phone, it, a text comes in, it says you're under arrest. Now, I, I thought, is this some kind of scam? Did someone get my number? It's like some young hacker who's like scaring me or something. So I look up at the audience and, but I see it's a North Dakota number. I said, oh my God, this, this might be true. And, um, <laughs> and I thought, you know, if, you, if there is an arrest warrant for you, you're not automatically going to be arrested like right there. But if you have any encounter with the FBI or the police or border guard, you will be arrested. And I thought, and I, I know. <laughs> I, I am in Canada. I have to go over the border. So I thought I am not going to say anything to this group. I just said, could someone call me a cab? So I raced to the airport. If I, if I can beat the arrest warrant going into the system. Yeah. And so I did. And I came came back to New York, and I mean, yes, it was true, and I knew we had to go back to North Dakota because this, I didn't take this personally. Mm. This was a clear message to journalists around the country, do not come to North Dakota, which is exactly why we needed to be there. And I had to let young journalists know, you know, you don't have to be... Yeah. You don't have... You don't have to... 
get a record when you want to put things on the record. And if they don't have the institutional backing, the journalistic organization, they don't have to believe that if they want to cover something as important as this, bring out the voices of people on the ground, that they're going to end up in prison. We've got to challenge this. We've got to call their bluff. So a few weeks later, we got back on the plane. We're flying into Bismarck. We land, and I hear that they've dropped the charges. They've quashed the arrest warrant, which was very good. That they would, then I called my North Dakota lawyer, not that I had one before. And, <laughs> and I said, so what's going to happen? He said, well, actually, they're going to bring more serious charges against you, possibly felony riot charges. What? Hmm. Riot? Like I'm a one-woman riot? What are they talking about? Right. Um, and he said, it's not the worst thing in the world. And I said, well, what do I face? He said, maybe a year in jail. I said, a year in jail? So I said, how much time do I have? He said, it's Friday, Monday at 1.30. You've got to turn yourself in. So I said, okay, good. We can cover the protests for three days. So we get out there, we cover the protests, and the show must go on. Monday morning, yeah. 8 o'clock New York time, 7 o'clock North Dakota time. We get a big broadcast truck. We rent it from Minneapolis. It comes up, and we decide to broadcast in, in Mandan in front of the courthouse and the jail um, uh, because then I could just turn myself in after. And, uh, oh, and then, you know, it really, as 90% of life is just showing up, and the, and the Ten Commandments in between the courthouse and the jail. So we start broadcasting, and at the time, the tribal chairman was Dave Archambault and uh, the 45th chairman of the Standing Rock Sioux. You know, like, Trump is the 45th president of the United States. And um, I said to Dave Archambault, have you ever been arrested? And he said, well, yeah, I was arrested for civil disobedience. And I said, what happened to you? And he said, um, you know, low-level misdemeanor. And I said, and what happened? And he said, oh, I was strip searched. I was put in an orange jumpsuit and I was jailed. Strip search for a minor misdemeanor? I mean, mm. wow. And 45th chairman of the Standing Rock Sioux, 45th president, you know, orange would match. Uh, but, um, uh, and then I interviewed Dr. Sarah Jumping Eagle. She is the pediatrician of the Standing Rock Reservation. Right. Mm -hmm. I said, were you ever arrested? And she said, yes, I was one of the first because she cared about the health of the children. I said, what happened? She said, strip search, put in an orange jumpsuit in jail. How much humiliation right. can a people take? And there were hundreds. I was at the airport one day in Bismarck. A guy came up to me and says, don't think I don't know who you are. <laughs> I said, oh, well, who are you? And he said, I was one of the guards that day. I, I was there. And I said, were you one of the guards who unleashed dogs on the Native Americans? He said, no. He said, we were as surprised as you were. There were three different security um, uh, companies that were hired, and one of them unleashed these dogs, he said. Wow. And he said, you know, don't. He said, you don't think I understand. We have, he said, committed massacres against them for hundreds of years. Then we unleash dogs and then you don't understand, you don't think I understand why they're angry at us. So I always say to young people, never assume someone's position based on the position that they occupy. Mm. Um, so we do the show and um, at the end of the broadcast, more and more Native Americans came to show solidarity. It got very crowded. Hundreds of people were performing ceremonies and the riot police were lining up. It was getting very serious. But, you know, when a journalist was being arrested, it was getting more national and international attention. It was the homepage of BBC, Al Jazeera, New York Times, Los Angeles Times. Vogue magazine was covering this, Come on, okay? Man. So that puts pressure 
yep. on the judge. We had released a press release saying who the judge was that was making this decision. And as the hours ticked down, um, I got a call from North Dakota Public Radio, a guy who'd been there for decades, knew all the players. It's not a big state pop, you know, population-wise. And he said, he's not going to dare sign off on these charges against you. He can't do it with this kind of attention. And it wasn't only me. A number of Native Americans who faced felony and misdemeanor charges that day had their charges dropped. This is what happens mm -hmm. when the media shines a spotlight mm -hmm. in the right direction. Mm -hmm. I believe in reality television, not the kind he starred in. I'm talking about <laughs> the kind that actually shows the reality of people's lives yeah. on the ground. Yeah. That's the kind of media that we have to support all over this country and around the world and build up all over. Media that goes to where the silence is. Mm. And frankly, it is not always very quiet there. It is people who are speaking out who often go unheard in the media. Don't hit that corporate media radar screen. We need a media I, you know, that expresses the views of the majority of people. That's right. Because I think those who care about war and peace, those who care about the growing inequality in this country, those who care about climate change, the fate of the planet, are not a fringe minority, not even a silent majority, but the silenced majority, silenced by the corporate media, which is why we have to take the media back. Right. Oh, that's right. oh, man. That's so good and so true. Thank you. Oh, stepping out of your journalist role, how do the stories you cover on climate change and climate activism personally affect you? Mm. And, and what are your personal takeaways? Mm. I mean, Climate change, climate catastrophe, climate disruption affects everyone personally. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This is a personal issue. And I think especially young people understand what they are confronting. Um, and I, for me, it's just ensuring that people's voices are heard. That's what gives me the most hope. I mean, we're dealing with global catastrophes right now. But when you see people rising up, 7, 10, and 16-year-olds who are confronting their senators and saying, hmm. I may be too young to vote, but I'm the one who's going to inherit this, so you're going to listen to me. Mm -hmm. um, when you see indigenous people on the front lines, and you know, by the way, DAPL did get built. The Dakota Access Pipeline did get built. But indigenous people, the Standing Rock Sioux, and their allies, it was the largest unification of native tribes from Latin America, the United States, First Nations of Canada, that we have ever seen, wow. are leading the struggle today. They're on the front lines of all the UN climate summits, whether they're outside getting arrested or sometimes inside um, actually addressing these plenaries. And so these are movements that are building. And when you hear the voices of people, yes, understanding what they face, but also talking about how they're organizing, there's nothing that's more exhilarating than seeing people taking all of our lives into their hands mm. to save us all. Mm. So, Amy, I, I guess for me, one, as I'm listening to you, um, on one hand, I'm, I'm, I'm filled with joy of hearing your story, but also, I'm also filled with a little bit of fear from the standpoint, I remember when I was 
we were in New Orleans after Katrina. I remember when we were marching there, I remember having folks give me death threats, saying the N-word, if you cross that bridge, we're gonna kill you. Um, and I remember, man. And they did kill people. And they did kill people, and I was like, I don't wanna, I don't wanna die. And I think about you and your bravery as a journalist. And I think about this president and how he depicts with fake news. And I think about the journalists who were killed in Annapolis. I think about what's happening to all the different things. What's your response to that in regards to this president labeling fake news and what it means that journalists are literally being killed mm. for reporting the story? Mm. I mean, it is so serious that President Trump continually refers to the media as the enemy of the American people. The media is essential to the functioning of a democratic society. He's afraid of the truth, so he's afraid of the media. Um, yes. Yes. And I actually think most people across the political spectrum appreciate that. Um, know how important it is. And also, um, he has forced the media to find their backbone. Mm. I mean, um, I'm not just mm. talking about, I'm not talking about Fox. I'm talking also about MSNBC and, C and uh, CNN and the other networks. Uh, so often they provide a forum for the talking heads of the establishment. Mm -hmm. Now they are sounding a little like democracy now, like we're essential to the functioning of a democratic society, they will say. And they are reinforcing to people why the media is so important, because he has threatened them directly, called out their names. And I, I don't support that in any way, but it's really important to see the media really showing how important it is to be the fourth estate, not um, a part of the parties, um, but we are not supposed to be state media. You know, so often, for example, Fox is the closest to state media we have. But before that, um, you really had to ask, if we had state media in this country, how would it be any different? Yes, they're finding a backbone and they're speaking in an oppositional way to President Trump. But when it comes to two issues, they cannot break away from their knee-jerk reactions. And that is on the issue of war and climate change. Mm. On the issue of war, I remember when President Trump, um, you know, sent those 58 Tomahawk missiles to, uh, into a Syrian airbase. Um, Syria, absolutely critical issue of the day. Um, and I can't remember who it was on CNN. I think it was, uh, oh no, I, was, I came home late that night and I turned on Brian Williams on MSNBC. In 30 seconds, he talked about the beauty of the armaments in flight three times. <laughs> the beauty of the armaments, quoting Leonard Cohen, who would have rolled over in his grave. And then it was Fareed Zakaria on CNN when uh, Trump dropped the Moab, uh, at the nickname for it, the mother of all bombs. That's the Pentagon's nickname, the massive ordnance air blast. It has like a mile radius mm -hmm. on Afghanistan. Inexplicably just dropped it. Bush had developed it, didn't dare use it. Obama didn't dare use it. And then Trump within weeks in office just drops this bomb on Afghanistan. And, uh, it was Fareed who said something like he became president that night. 
we have to be separate from the state. And of course, when it comes to climate change, think how often these networks are bringing you weather. I mean, the nonstop, the hurricanes, the tornadoes on the ground, the flooding. And this is very important. Every five or six minutes, right, we get weather reports. And they'll flash extreme weather, severe weather. What about another two words? Climate change. Climate chaos, it's not just about what we're going to wear that day, the weather. It's about what we're going to do about this. It is an existential threat, and people do care when they know. These weather events are so disparate, coldest weather ever, dust bowl conditions in the Midwest, the fires in California, they don't seem to be connected unless we talk about it in a serious way. When it's cold in New York, Trump says, ha-ha, and they're talking about global warming. Right. That makes sense to someone who doesn't understand, could be very intelligent. That's what the media has to do, is really explain what this is all about, that when you heat up the planet, it's going to express itself in all different ways, and it might be freezing weather, or it might be the waters rising, and these are all connected. And we have to demand that the media, you know, they have licenses to operate in the public interest, that they use those licenses in a responsible way or have their licenses revoked. Yes. Mm. Absolutely. Amy, thank you so much. Thank you for and thank you thank for you. all so that you do. Yes, thank you for your wisdom, your experiences, and for your leadership. Can we give her another round of yes. applause? Give it, up. give it up, y'all, for the amazing Amy Goodman. Thank you, Amy. Each of our guests brought so much for us to think about, and my big takeaway is that powerful mm-hmm. women have the vision for this movement. All right. Uh, Yes. Yes, yes, yes. And you know what's common to their stories? Risk. Risk that has come with greater reward and greater impact. No risk is too big when it comes to saving the babies. That's right. I couldn't agree with you more, Antonique. Yes, let's give that a round of applause. And the time is now, we have to, you know, we have to get moving, we have to change how we do business. Amy just shared that with us. And we have to make sure that we're including our funders and foundations and the changes that need to happen. If the money behind the movement isn't completely aligned with the front lines, those communities who are often forgotten, as Ellen shared, then we are missing what this is all about. And the good news is, as we uh, heard tonight, we are moving in that direction. But we are up against the clock. So what we have to do is to step it up. We must assert the change to make things happen. We have to listen to young people, to women, to people of color, who have the most invested in this process. Thank you all for joining us. Give yourself a round of applause. I think 100% the coolest show on climate change. Remember, young people win. Wait, 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 hold on. Hold up. Wait a minute. Hold up, wait a minute. show on climate change. I know we aren't going to end like that. There has to be some aspect of, I mean, I'm inspired. I'm pumped up. Are y'all pumped up? I'm fired. 
But I mean, we need some culture so we can keep some things kind of moving here. So I know we can have possibly the amazing Antonique Smith sing. Uh-oh. All right. Okay. Well, yeah, I could do that, Rev. Y'all want to hear me sing? Yeah, I could do that. for sure. But first, Rev, we have a little surprise for you. Oh, shoot. Y'all know Rev is a tireless voice for justice and for our people and for the planet. And he's been pushing for over two decades to broaden the movement, meet folks where they're at, and to work through culture and art and touch people's heart first and foremost. So we have an artist here tonight, Robert Shutterly who did a portrait of you, and we are going to unveil it right now, and then I'll sing a little song for you. Oh, all right. <laughs> oh, Come on up man. here, Robert. Thank you very much. What, a, what an amazing time to be on the stage with you and this group. Um, I have to give you a little background. I live in a little tiny town on the coast of Maine. I was, I was not a portrait painter. I was a surrealist, and 17 and a half years ago, in the run-up to the Iraq war, I was so full of anger and grief. Uh, I thought, I've got to change the way I'm living. I've got to become more engaged in the citizen, and I've got to do it through the thing I do best, which is paint. And I've got to somehow connect um, this painting to what's going on in, in my life and in the country. And um, it took me quite a while to figure out what to do, but then the answer was very simple, that instead of ranting about the people who were lying to us about this war and the media who wasn't telling the truth. Um, I should surround myself with people who were, um, um, you know, that I loved, who, who had inspired me to be a better citizen and, and had done the best work in this country for trying to close the gap for hundreds of years between what we actually, what we say as a country and what we actually do. I painted Walt Whitman, Frederick Douglass, Susan B. Anthony, um, you know, Mother Jones, Jane Addams, all these 19th century figures, moved into the 20th century. There are now 240 portraits, and they travel all over the country to schools, colleges, museums, uh, libraries, churches, providing models of courageous citizenship for young people. I was doing an event last year in Vermont with Bill McKibben, who was mentioned earlier, and he said to me, why haven't you painted Reverend Yearwood? <laughs> and I knew about Reverend Yearwood and I just hadn't gotten there yet. But I have now. And uh, I just want to say, you know, what this man does and this organization does is so important because it, you know, connects. It finds the intersection between climate change, environmental justice, mass incarceration, corrupt government, war profiteering, and all these other things, and brings young people into this struggle. It gets them excited and he uses culture to do it. He uses the hip hop culture. And he gets these people active, he gives them hope, he gives them solutions, and he gives them community. Because without the community, there is no hope. They've got to be acting through the community. And so it's such a great pleasure to be here with you and to have painted this portrait. It will now travel with all the other portraits. And thank you very much. And we're going to unveil it. A hundred years from now, none of us will be here. But what will be here is the spirit of us fighting for a just, sustainable, 
and prosperous world for all. We fight not only for ourselves, but for future generations. All power to the people. Thank you, Robert. I'm honored. On that note, on, on, on that note, Antonique, I need, I need you to close this out. Has this not been an incredible evening? Thank you so much for coming out tonight. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Like what you heard? Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and visit think100.info to learn more about the issues and donate to this project. Also, be sure to follow us at think100show and at Hip Hop Caucus on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Use hashtag think100. Thanks again and all power to the people.